Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Gary Gerstel, Professor Emeritus and Director of Research in American History at Sydney Sussex College at the University of Cambridge. Gary is a historian of 20th century America with substantial interests in the late 18th and 19th century. He received his BA from Brown University and his MA and PhD from Harvard. He's written a fascinating catalog of books, including his most recent title, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he is coming to us from, I think, blazing Cambridge, England. So Gary, I hope you're staying cool and welcome to the show. Well, the heat wave has passed, but yesterday was 103, the hottest day in the history of Britain. And they, unlike people of Nashville, who I used to live among, are not used to it. So it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. Sure. So today I want to talk about what the neoliberal era is. Explain it to me and our listeners, because I think I understand it, but I want to make sure how it came, how it's gone so fast, as well as the question of how we as a nation can change our own fate. But first, I want to start with your book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. So let's get into it. So, Gary, in your book, you take us through the sort of foundation rise and the fall of neoliberalism, which is the follow on sort of political order, as you call it, to the New Deal. So we have the Great Depression in the late 1920s into the 1930s. Franklin Roosevelt comes in. The New Deal, I think, is a bulwark both to democracy and the American economy that leads us into World War II. And I thought it was interesting that one of your premises is that when you have these big political orders, that basically there's one leading political party, for lack of a better way to put it. And it's so powerful that the opposition party sort of bends its will to that order. So, as you said, with FDR, you know, the New Deal, but then with Eisenhower and even into Nixon, they continued sort of that New Deal ethos. And then you move forward into Ronald Reagan, you know, the rise of neoliberalism in American politics, which then Bill Clinton bent his political will towards. So give us a little bit of sense of what the definition of neoliberalism is and why is it key to where we are and how we've gotten to this place in American history? Neoliberalism is a creed that wants to unleash capitalism's power and to free markets from constraints. The doctrine believes that markets left to their own devices produce the greatest economic growth and thus the greatest economic good. This is at the heart of neoliberalism. 
It's not a common term yet in the United States. It's more commonly used in Europe. And I made a decision deliberately to use neoliberalism rather than what would have been the alternative, which is conservative. And the reason I chose neoliberalism over conservatism is because neoliberalism focuses squarely on capitalism and questions of political economy. When we use the term conservative, conservatism in the classical sense connotes a respect for order, hierarchy, respect for institutions, working within them, slow organic change. And there were elements of conservatism in American life. The South under Jim Crow fits that. The hostility on the part of a lot of people to liberation movements for women and others, the desire to restore the patriarchal family as a form of conservatism. So I don't deny the existence of conservatism. But among historians, the label conservative has led us to focus almost entirely on these groups and to skip over what I consider to be one of the key developments of the late 20th century, and that is a new era in the history of capitalism. And capitalism is by nature both destructive and creative. It's not respectful of older institutions. It's not deferential. It prizes disorder, chaos, venture, entrepreneurialism. And the U.S. had one of these capitalist revolutions in the late 20th century associated with the release of market power, or this is how it was presented, the release of capitalism and market power from the constraints that a strong state system of the New Deal was thought to have imposed on it. And I felt that neoliberalism captures this emphasis on markets, entrepreneurialism, innovation better than the term conservative does. And I tell the story about how we might call it a market revolution or an advocacy of markets arose from the ruins of the New Deal order of the 1960s and 70s. Reagan was its key architect, but one of the most interesting parts of the book is not Reagan, not that he's not interesting, but I think that story is more familiar to people. People understand that he was a free market advocate and an opponent of strong states wanting to release capitalism's power. I think more hidden from you is the degree to which Clinton in the 1990s, a Democrat, acquiesced to many of the neoliberal principles that Reagan had advocated and brought the Democratic Party along with him. And this is where I shift from neoliberalism to a neoliberal order. And I have this concept of political order that you described well, which is how do we know a political order is present? Because one political party is so dominant in some of its core ideological beliefs that it is able to bend the opposition party to its will. The Democratic Party did this with Eisenhower in the 1950s when the New Deal became a political order. The first Republican president in 20 years since 1932. What's he got to do? You think he would get in there and dismantle the New Deal and restore free enterprise, small government, power to the states? He does nothing of the sort. He endorses the core principles of the New Deal. It's at that moment when the political movement associated with FDR and the Democratic Party becomes a political order. But can I just interrupt? Because, I mean, the one thing you note, and I think is true, having studied Eisenhower myself, was that nobody really knew where he stood politically. Could he be a Democrat? Could he be a Republican? I think everybody was courting him. But you could call him, I think, Gary, conservative in some respects, which is he had obviously grown up in one of the largest institutions at that time in the world, the United States Army. So he had a respect for institutions and that, you know, he had a respect for an order. Right. And that, you know, he saw that there was and maybe again, this goes back to being in an institution for most of his life where there was a hierarchy 
but also like everybody understood their place in it and respected their place in it. But there was also advancement possible to an extent, but that, you know, he kept taxes very high. He unleashed American might not only against the Soviets, and I want to come back to communism a little bit later because I found that part of your discussion fascinating, but also, you know, the interstate highway system, right? He talked about for every bomber that we build, we don't build two schools. In an interesting way, he was a post-New Dealer, New Dealer, I guess, who understood there needed to be some order and some rules, but that obviously starts to erode as we get into the 60s and 70s. Yes, well, we can consider him a conservative for having been a military man, uh, certainly respect for institutions and the hierarchy that the military treasures and needs. There's another way of telling his story in the military. He had sat on one of the largest exercises of government power ever exercised by any polity on the face of the earth. And I'm thinking of D-Day. And what is that but a massive exercise of government power? He sat at the apex of that. He saw what governments could do. And I think you can also tell the story about him that his experience with bureaucracies, public bureaucracies, public service, inclined him to see government positively, not just in the military, but in civilian life. And so he was very much part of what became the New Deal order, which was to say, listen, this is what Americans are telling each other in the 1940s. We just won this incredible war through the exercise of government power. We also, in the process, restored prosperity to the economy and rebuilt Europe through government programs. And government is a force for good. And I think Eisenhower believed that. He writes to his brother at one point, he says, you know, even if I wanted to dismantle Social Security and bring down taxes and erase labor's power, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd be chased out of office so quickly that I wouldn't have a chance to govern. So partly he had the experience of having succeeded with government to solve some of the world's greatest problems, but he also understood that this is what the popular sentiment was. And if the Republicans were going to get back into office, this is what a Republican president had to do. Now, there was an alternative to Eisenhower, and he was the celebrated figure in the Republican Party until the Cold War really heated up. And that was Robert Taft, senator from Ohio. Mr. Republican, he is your traditional classic Republican, suspicious of strong states, suspicious of America's entanglement with the world, wanting to dismantle the New Deal, wanting to curtail military appropriations, not wanting a standing army, seeing it in the 18th century sense as corrosive of liberty. If you're a betting person in 1946 or 47, you're betting that Taft, not Eisenhower, is going to be the candidate to become the next Republican president of the United States. And then the Cold War changes everything and compels the doubters in the Republican Party to get aboard the New Deal consensus to accept the New Deal order because it was seen as instrumental in not just domestic prosperity, but containing communism abroad and at home. And so Eisenhower comes out of nowhere. You're right. His politics were not known. He comes out of nowhere, but it's as much about the collapse of the Taft alternative as it is having to do with anything Eisenhower himself did. So then we get into Kennedy, Johnson, and then Nixon, right? Is They're continuing the sort of New Deal ideal. Johnson tries to increase it even with the great society. Nixon, of all people, most folks don't remember, created the Environmental Protection Agency, <laughs> right? And some of these other things that thought, you know, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. We shouldn't have that happen anymore. And so there was a reason for the state to get involved in some places. But simultaneously to that, Gary, you have this small band of neoliberal thinkers 
Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Hayek, Ayn Rand, all these folks, you know, starting in Europe and then migrating east to the United States who believe all of this statism is just a stalking horse for communism to ultimately, you know, achieve its ends. Now, maybe I'm oversimplifying that, and I probably am, but there was something going on simultaneously under the surface that maybe went along with that Taft. Obviously, I think we see it pop up in Goldwater briefly in 1964, and then that's where Reagan starts to get involved through his talk of GE and with his talks around the country. And now, you know, we get through the 70s, we've got Watergate, we've got Nixon, We've got Ford, we've got stagflation and Jimmy Carter, and boom, 1980 appears, and Ronald Reagan's on the scene. Why was his election so seminal when it comes to this neoliberal order? Because he was the first president since Herbert Hoover and maybe since Calvin Coolidge in 1924, who really wanted to take down the big state established by Democrats in the New Deal to regulate capitalism. He saw big government as putting any society, America included, on the road to a form of communist servitude. He saw big states as existing on a continuum, and they all led to a bad place. And it was government tyranny and the stripping away of what he felt was most precious about America, which was the right of an individual to his freedoms. So I don't know how well you remember Reagan. I was a Democrat. I still am a Democrat. And we were very condescending to him. A B-list actor, never read a book. Bedtime for Bonzo, substituted fantasy for reality. Not a serious man. This is a misperception of Reagan. He was a very serious thinker. He had been a supporter of the New Deal. Roosevelt, for him, was always the great political figure of the 20th century. And even after he broke with him politically, he admired him for what he had accomplished and wanted to have during his presidency a second rendezvous with destiny. But he had been an anti-communist since the early 50s. He thought the New Deal was putting the U.S. on a road to a managed economy, which was going to strangle capitalism and then individual liberties and form a kind of collectivist tyranny. And he set his mind in the early 50s to taking down the New Deal state. So this is a man who is not an ingenue. He may have been a failed movie star, but he was not a failed politician. He won two elections to the governorship of California. Momentarily, he saved Goldwater's nomination in 1964 by giving a great speech that galvanized the forces of the libertarian wing of the Republican Party when Goldwater was failing. It was not enough to save him, but that's where Reagan's national reputation was born. He wins election twice to California, and he's on the front lines of the culture wars and left-right battles of the 60s and 70s, the new left, black power, managed economy, welfare. He's at the center of all those struggles, so he is no ingenue. And we have to understand his folksiness for what it is, an actor acting out a role to make himself seem very popular, folksy, appealing. Listen, not the governor of California, not a Hollywood actor, but that same man from that rural town in Illinois. Yes. And he's a serious man and his politics have to be taken seriously. You know, he was reading Hayek on train rides in the 1950s when he was going to give free enterprise speeches to all the 125 plants of General Electric, they hired him to do that. And so he broke with the New Deal order. Now, the New Deal order was breaking up already, and the key neoliberal thinkers that you were referring to, Hayek, von Mises, Milton Friedman, they have been working on freeing the economy from the constraints of a big state for 30 years by the 1970s, and they were utterly irrelevant in American life. And listeners should pay attention, and this is true as much for Democratic listeners as for Republican listeners, these guys were in the wilderness for 30 years, right? No one's taking them 
seriously. In fact, they have to go to a mountaintop in Switzerland to even have a quorum, right? <laughs> well, it's a confession of irrelevance. If you got to go to Switzerland to have your meetings and you want to shape American society, you're in trouble. And yet Hayek had the conviction that at a certain point, he or someone like him, turned out to be more Friedman than him, would be a Latter-day Moses descending from the mountaintops with two neoliberal tablets that were going to have 10 new commandments. And then in the 70s, because of the stagflation you referred to, profound changes in the international economy. The New Deal is also breaking up over the race question, which is one question it couldn't solve. And we're still working on today. We're still working on today. So it is, it's a period of recession, suffering. And this is a moment that doesn't come along very often when people begin to cast around for new ideas, new political voices. And these guys who had been on the long march, these neoliberals, the long march from Mount Pelerin, the mountain in Switzerland, to Washington, D.C., Reagan is their candidate, and he's committed to their ideology, and that is what makes his election in 1980 such an important turning point in American political life. And he stays true to his principles, and he sets out to dismantle the big state inherited from the New Deal. He's not able to do that completely because the New Deal had become embedded in all sorts of institutions. It's not something that can be accomplished overnight, but he stays true to the principles that got him into office and proceeds to plan policies that are going to put those principles into practice. So I want to press the pause button on Reagan just for a second and talk about communism. Obviously, uh, Marx Engels writes the Communist Manifesto, the Russian Revolution in 1917. As you write, even Woodrow Wilson, as he was headed to Europe, you know, after World War I, saw Vladimir Lenin as his prime opponent in the world. So he understood, you know, back into the 1910s, what was facing us. It captured with some romanticism that I don't think was ever frankly earned, you know, a lot of the hearts of the American left, the Western European left, because it's this utopia, right? It's supposed to be this utopia, which of course we know it's not. But as you write, the specter of communism always provided a steam valve on corporate America to say, we have to work with American labor because if we don't, then we might get communism and they might take everything and we don't want that. But as communism falls, so does that fear of labor or organized labor, I should say, in the United States. I might be oversimplifying, but I just I don't want to pass that by because I, I had not thought about it in the context of communism as a global force, but also how specific it provided this sort of counterbalance to unfettered corporate power as well. You're not oversimplifying. You got that exactly right. I'm a Cold War baby. It surprises me how much the Cold War has faded from view among Americans today. We don't talk about it much. It uh, doesn't seem to be that urgent, even though Putin, we should remember, is also a child of the Cold War from the other side and considers the self-dissembly of the Soviet Union between 1989 and 1991 as the most humiliating moment in Russian history. So he's also a Cold War baby. The U.S. and the USSR were two revolutionary societies in a sense that they thought they had an ideology that could revolutionize not just life for themselves, but life for everyone in the world. In America, it was individualism, capitalism, personal liberty. It was a universalist message. And the Soviet Union's message was just the opposite, that liberties of under capitalism are counterfeit. They don't mean anything except if you're rich. 
we are going to emancipate the working man from his poverty, from his degradation. We are, we're going to give him dignity, security, opportunity, a good life. And it doesn't matter what you think of communism now. This was a revolutionary promise of communism. And both the Soviet Union and the United States understood there was not really room for both these revolutionary societies on the globe because they were both universal. They both aspired to universalize their ideals. They were going to come into conflict. And then, of course, with the bomb, they come into potentially deadly conflict. So it's not surprising that the Cold War broke out and became such an urgent question. Do you think it also locked in Americans collectively for that time, for that 40 or 50 years? Yes. And sometimes I think that if I think of where did the Republican Party lose its way, I think it's post-Cold War after 1991, when the principle that they had organized their politics around, which was defeating communism in the world, that was their most important goal, had been achieved. But what matters here from the Amer as the Americans saw communism is the theory of totalitarianism, which turned out to be wrong. That doesn't matter here. What matters is that in the 1940s and 50s, it was believed. Totalitarianism said there's a new kind of dictatorship in the world, a new kind of tyranny, able to use mass media, able to manipulate people's minds to an extraordinary extent that dictators 100 years earlier could never have done. And thus, these tyrannies, once they establish themselves, are so powerful and so complete, they can't be disestablished. Why do we get into Vietnam, the United States? A country that was small, not much of a market, no critical resources, because communism there, if established, would never disappear, and it would be expansionary. So it would go from Vietnam to the rest of Indochina, and then would take down Japan. It had already taken down China. So you had to contain communism. That was the first priority. And you had to contain communists in the U.S. because there was no telling what they might be up to. And you had to recognize these antagonists for the extraordinary enemy that they were. And so you, as a Republican or you as a head of a corporation, you had to forestall the worst. And the worst was the establishment of communist dictatorship on American soil. Because if that was established and there were communist elements of the American labor movement, you could never get rid of it. And so there was a willingness in corporate America to compromise with the non-communist elements of the organized labor movement, to share profits to a degree that they would not otherwise been willing to share, to have labor peace, to improve the circumstances of the ordinary working man to a degree that they might not otherwise been willing to contemplate. So I'm not sure so much it's a safety valve. It's more the thinking is we have to make this concession in order to preserve capitalism. And maybe we have to make concessions a bit larger than we would really like to make, but it's worth it because we have this antagonist out there that at some point in the future could do us in permanently. And so it inclines industrial elites to compromise with organized labor in ways that they had not previously been willing to do. And this, I argue, is an incredibly important element of the grand compromise of the New Deal order between capital and labor. Capital can have its profits, but organized labor has to be able to give its all its members, and they had a lot of members then, a chance at a decent middle-class life for themselves and their children. And this becomes the foundation of the New Deal order and explains why it lasted as long as it did. So 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. 1992, Bill Clinton, young, charismatic Southern Democrat, head of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was the moderate sort of think tank for Democrats in America, elected to office, right? It's the economy, stupid. 
And over the course of the next eight years, he embodies and then ensconces a neoliberal order on the United States, its economy, and maybe even the growing world, as it were, Gary. And Melissa, my dad was a senior person for Duke Gingrich for many years. You know, they have these public fights. You know, Gingrich wants to destroy Clinton, wants to deny him a second term. But behind the scenes, they get all this stuff done. At one point, as I recall, as a younger man, during a State of the Union speech, Bill Clinton declares that the era of big government is over. They'd be anathema to most Democrats today. But then it seemed to make sense in a world that was now free of communism and looking to free America, too, from whatever its last restrictive bonds might have been on individual liberty. But in the meantime, to your point about the compromise that corporate America or powerful interests had to make, those shackles are also removed. Yes. Sometimes statistics can be revealing. Here's one that's very revealing. In 1960, at the heyday of the New Deal order, the average corporate executive made 12 to 20 times what an average worker in that corporation made. By 2000, the average ratio was two to 300 to one. With the elimination of communism, capitalism has the whole world at its doorstep. One of the things that communism did was to take very significant portions of the world off the table for capitalist penetration. You were not going to have substantial markets in the Soviet Union. China indicated it was trying to marry communism with some kind of market capitalism, but it had not gone very far. 1990s is the first decade of China's explosion on the world scene. So capitalism goes global in a way that it had not been global since prior to the First World War. This fires the imagination of capitalists. The communists are gone. They no longer have to worry about totalitarianism. They no longer have to worry about a really bad alternative coming to haunt them in their enterprises or in their homeland. And so the inclination to compromise with organized labor vaporizes. And by 2000, the percentage of workers in the private sector organized into unions is down into the single digits where it had been prior to the Great Depression and reached a nadir to which I thought it would never return. So the fundamental balance between capital and labor changes in the 1990s. And part of what facilitates it is the disappearance of capitalism's most ardent and determined enemy. At the same time, it disorients the left. What does the left do? Even as most leftists by 1991, 1992 had gotten off the Soviet bandwagon. But when the Soviet Union itself admits that the most spectacular experiment in socialism the world had ever seen had been an abysmal failure. This is not its critics saying this. They are saying this to themselves. You know, it's not redeemable. So we're simply going to take the Soviet Union apart. This is not how empires usually go out from the world. And that's what you write, that Gorbachev, who was a committed socialist, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, said, if this thing isn't good enough to stand on its own, it should be allowed to own its failure, basically. That's right. It's a very courageous thing for him to have done. Because most leaders in that position would not have acted. Whether you're part of an empire in the free world or the communist world, this is not how leaders of empires like to go out, sign the death warrant of their experiment. It would be as if an American president said, you know what, I'm going to rip up the Constitution. <laughs> well, we'll get to that <laughs> in a second. But so 93, you know, even up to today now, Gary, you have this unleashing of capital and this deregulation bonanza, right? Glass-Steagall, which had separated commercial banking from investment banking. Clinton gets rid of that. China trade happens, right? And so the labor left, 
in America is like basically it's bereft, right? It's got nothing left. Its jobs are gone. Its economic ideology is gone. Everything's gone. And so now we're we're on this steady march. Democrat and Clinton, Republican and Bush, Democrat and Obama all continue this idea, even in the face of, you know, in 2008, a financial crisis that was brought on by, you know, Bush wanting, you know, the home ownership society. Look, I was an advanced man for George W. Bush. Look, I don't know how many ownership society speeches I heard, Gary, standing in the offstage announce area, but we did them everywhere. And I think that Bush really believed it. Let's make it easier for folks to buy homes. You know, lending gets loose, money gets easy. Then boom, 2008, 2009 happened. Banks get bailed out. Individual homeowners are screwed, at least from my perspective, and it's probably amateurish. And now it takes the average American years and years and years to recover, but it takes the, you know, big elite institutions. They call it a speed bump in retrospect. You know, okay, yeah, Lehman went down, Bear went down. But the truth is, look, we're all back. We're fine. So, you know, take us through those Obama years where now he came in with hope and change. And, and well, he certainly runs headlong into the Mitch McConnells of the world, but also I think runs headlong into the realities of the United States, being the president of the United States. And now here we are. I want to fast forward a bit to, you know, 2015, 2016, right? So by then, is the neoliberal order dead? Is it dying? Because I want to figure out how we get from the New Deal to its, you know, functional opposite, I guess, which is the neoliberal order to now this place where we seem to be floating out in space, where there does not seem to be a shared idea or ideology among the two sides. And I don't even think among the two sides, if we're going to oversimplify it, they agree on anything. The promise of neoliberalism, this was Reagan's message. It was Clinton's message. It was George W. Bush's message. If you release the market from constraints and let capitalism do its thing, you're going to see an era of such extraordinary abundance. It's not going to eradicate inequality, but all boats will rise. Everyone will benefit. And I think for a substantial part of the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, a lot of Americans believe that. Do you believe it was true? Because belief and truth are two different things. No, I don't believe it was true. I think for some groups in American society, they made significant advances. But if you look at where did the white working class begin to lose itself, it did not begin after 2008, 2009. It began in the deindustrialization of the 1980s and 90s. It began as a result of NAFTA. So it was well underway. So it was already clear to people living through this to say working class parents in the 1990s, it was becoming clear that their children were not going to do as well as they did. Now, Gary, I don't remember if you mentioned him, but a couple of years ago, I went back because I'm a giant nerd and I rewatched Ross Perot's 30 minute infomercial on the American economy. And damned if he didn't call it almost to the minute. What year was that? 1992? 92. Yeah. And it's quite possible that one of Clinton's critical eras was supporting NAFTA rather than opposing it, because this is also a moment when an important part of the white working class base of the Democratic Party decomposes as a result of the effects of NAFTA on the body politic for the rest of the 1990s. So yes, you can say he called it right. Now, there were positive effects of releasing market forces, nowhere more so than in the high-tech industry. This was a technological market and capitalist phenomenon. So he hadn't entirely grasped that. But I think he understood that this shift would entail winners and losers, and there were going to be a lot of losers among Americans. And some of these people begin to lose in the 1990s. 
But the ideology of neoliberalism is so strong and the stock market is on the whole doing so well. And then the spread of home ownership, you know, what George W. Bush did was to substantially increase the access of minorities to home ownership during his presidency. In other words, those home ownership events that you had to organize made a difference in the short term. But the problem was it was all dependent on speculation. It was too ingratiating itself of the market. It didn't appropriate the funds that would have been needed to secure people who were taking out subprime mortgages. It was done on the cheap, so to speak. And so in that sense, it was another neoliberal strategy. What 2008 and 2009 do, and then the uneven recovery, is that it's clear to everyone after 2008 and 2009 that there are winners and there are losers. And if you're part of the global techno IT districts of American life, you're doing well. If you're not, you're not doing well at all. And it takes a while for political discontent to become apparent. But by 2015, 2016, you have a stunning political development. The two major political figures in American life are two people who had been utterly irrelevant and inconsequential in American life in the 1990s. And I'm thinking of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. If you go back to the 1990s and even first decade of the 20th century before 2008, and if you just carried around a microphone and just asked your average American, would Trump and Sanders be the dynamic forces in the 2016 election, maybe one out of 30 people would have given you a yes. Well, one they would have laughed at, and the other they would have said, who is that? Yeah, they would have laughed at Trump. He's not a serious man. You know, he's made a lot of money, but a lot of it with smoke and mirrors, and he will never succeed in the world of politics. And you're right, who the hell is Bernie Sanders? I was interested because you opened the book with them. To me, I think it was a very canny observation for a couple of reasons. One, and I've said this recently, so the listeners sometimes get bored with my greatest hit CDs, is that, you know, in 2016, I remember driving in my car and listening to a Bernie Sanders speech on the radio. And if you had removed the sort of base racism and ugliness of Trump and you just left in the populism, Gary, the speeches were nearly indistinguishable. Yes, absolutely. And um, I talk about this when I talk about the rise of Trump and Sanders in one of the late chapters in the book. And I, I do the reverse of what you've done. You've taken a Sanders speech and you imagine Trump. I take a Trump speech on paper and I imagine Sanders. Trump goes to talk to a bunch of steelworkers in Pittsburgh and saying, the elites have taken away your jobs, your livelihood, your future. They've sold you a bill of goods about globalization. Markets lift all boats. They've told you markets can't be protected, that the only way forward is free trade for the entire world. That has screwed you. And they both are equally intent on protectionism. But were they wrong? No, they're not wrong. And if you look at American history in the 19th century, when Britain was playing America's role, it was the premier economic power in the world and wanted to open the entire world to its goods. That's what it called free trade. And the United States says, hell no, we're a developing nation. And if we just open our borders to your goods without tariffs, we're going to kill our home industries. And so there's a, actually in America, there's a long history of protectionism and saying trade has to be managed in order for the country to develop in ways that it needs to, in, in order for a certain kind of distribution of fairness to be done. So it's not just that Trump and Sanders are making different arguments for the teens. They are drawing on traditions deeply rooted in the American past. The gospel of free trade has to be recognized for what it was. It's an ideology, even a theology 
that you buy into and don't question. And what they began to do is question this, and they were effective in doing so. And suddenly there's a crisis, there's an inflection point, and ideas that were marginal can enter the mainstream and become part of serious political debate. And that has happened in the last six or seven years. But now here we are, Gary, in 2022, where you have fundamental differences amongst what I'm going to call the extremes of the Republican and Democratic parties. So now where are we? Are we floating in space? Are we in a new political epoch? Is there a political order in the offing? Or is that the fight we're in now? That's the fight we're in now. One can imagine three possibilities. One, we continue in this moment of chaos that we're in, which is not comforting to anybody. And that could continue for quite some time. And it's not helped by what I regard as the paralysis of the premier legislative making body in the United States, and that's the U.S. Senate. And this is not just Biden's problem. It's not just Manchin. If you ask what did the Senate do under Trump other than pass tax relief, what do under Obama when McConnell during the last six years of Obama's presidency was blocking him from doing almost anything. It's not good for the premier legislative body in America to be paralyzed like that for what now has been more than a decade at a time when everyone recognizes there are pressing problems in the world. So one possibility is we continue down this road of chaos and the inability to put our politics back together. Then there is the possibility of the authoritarian ethno-nationalist order, which I think Trump and his core supporters embody. If he gets reelected in 2024, I think America probably ceases to be a democracy in a meaningful sense of that term. Doesn't mean it can't get it back at some future date, but I have found myself reading about the experience of other countries who lost their democracy and then had to find a way to get it back. And I have to tell you, I've been at this a long time, and I never thought that I, as an American historian, would need to read about the experience of other countries losing and then regaining their democracy. And then there's a kind of progressive political order that Biden entered office with high hopes for in alliance with Bernie Sanders, trying to redo the New Deal. And it's true, they had one insight that I think was correct. The Democratic Party has been strongest when the center and the left of the Democratic Party have been in some productive dialogue with each other. It was true during the Wilson administration, during the progressive era. It was true under Roosevelt and the New Deal. It was true with Johnson and the Great Society. The three great moments of Democratic Party achievement over the last hundred years, strongest when the center and the left of the Democratic Party have been in some productive dialogue with each other. It was true during the Wilson administration, during the progressive era. It was true during under Roosevelt and the New Deal. It was true with Johnson and the Great Society. The, the three great moments of Democratic Party achievement uh, over uh, the last hundred years. But that has collapsed utterly. And if you're going to have a transformational agenda, you have to control both houses of Congress. And Manchin has made it clear that the Democrats do not control the Senate. And I don't know what Schumer is up to, but given everything that Manchin has done over the last year, the idea that you are going into a negotiation with this man and are going to be shocked by what he does yet again, no, no, can't happen. Well, to your point about Manchin, I don't want to get too far off on it, which is do I believe that Manchin covets his status as the indispensable man? I think he does. Do I believe, to your point, that he has been incredibly clear about what it is he is and isn't going to go for? I think he probably has been, too. And so there's sometimes when I say, OK, yeah, he's intransigent, but also like maybe Chuck Schumer wanted everything. He knew he couldn't get it. And Joe Manchin provides a ready and willing scapegoat for that inability to get something done. 
But I would also say this because I get this question a lot, Gary. You know, it goes back to this sort of idea of this superficial messaging. Why can't Democrats get their messaging right? And it goes exactly to what you just said, which is they don't even agree with each other within the party on so much. How is it that they could have a consolidated and coherent vision for the United States? You've got, I think the progressives are probably the much smaller partner, but much noisier partner, much more potent partner, for lack of a better way to put it, than the moderate Democrats. But the moderate Democrats are scared the hell out of them, right? So it sort of puts them in this stasis where they don't use the authority either in Congress, or the U.S. House or even the White House that they might otherwise, because they're so afraid of getting their own people after them, which they do. Look, Gary, just to give you a sense, Joe Biden gives a State of the Union speech, not one, but two Democrats give a response to it. Like, that's crazy, right? The idea, wait, 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 the leader of your party gives his magnum opus annually, and you're going to go out and tell the American people what you don't like about it. I would frame it a tad more positively, although I agree with your conclusion in the sense. I think the center of the Democratic Party represented by Biden and the left represented by Sanders had a plan. It was carefully worked out, carefully negotiated. They had six teams of people working even before Biden got into office to put into place various proposals. And so I don't blame them for that. They actually overcame, which was not easy to do, to your point, their differences. And they agreed on a plan. What they didn't do is after that plan failed, come up with an alternative, recalibrate, improvise, come out of the year with something. It looks like they will come out of the year with nothing other than an infrastructure bill, which could have been a lot bigger if it had been passed a lot sooner. But I've been saying for years now, because I was critical of Obama in this regard. Every time you put something in the ground or you give money to a state and locale, you put a sign next to it saying, Biden built this for you. <laughs> Obama built this for you. Where are those signs? Where is that messaging? Gary, I mean, you may not know this because you have far more important things to do, but the group of people who put out the first commercial in Washington, D.C. to congratulate President Joe Biden on passing and signing an infrastructure bill was the Lincoln Project, a bunch of ex-Republicans. <laughs> right? Like, what does that say? Well, that's the messaging. The other problem the Democrats have, and this is a deeper problem, it's an electoral problem, it has to do with the unevenness and the injustices of the electoral system. Right now, there's a Senate where 30% of the people elect 70% of the senators. The Democratic Party, you know, it has a popular majority. It's demonstrated that in election after election. But most people live on coasts or in big cities, and so it is not strong in the Electoral College. Electoral College is not going to be gotten rid of anytime soon. And so this, you could say, is an age-old problem in American life, but it's a more recent and more urgent problem because when the Democratic Party had the White South as a constituency, which it did up until the 1960s and 1970s, it had strength in rural and small-town areas, and that gave it a strength in the Electoral College. Now, the Democratic Party had a break with its racist segregationist past, so they made the right decision. But it has not replaced its strength in rural areas and small towns the white South had given it. And given the, the way in which the American electoral system is structured, and if I could change it, I would, because I don't think it's very fair, but this is the game that has to be played right now. One of the key questions for the Democrats is, how do they replace the electoral votes that have been lost when the white South moved out of the Electoral Party. That's not a matter of bringing racists back into the party. It means replacing a constituency whose area of residence was crucial for Democratic Party success. 
how does the Democratic Party succeed? And that means, how does the Democratic Party succeed in small towns and rural areas in America? And I'm not ready to bury Biden and the Democrats yet. Again, think of what you started us off with, Hayek, von Mises, Friedman. Think of their long march through 30 years of wilderness. You have to be prepared for these long marches if you're going to get the big prizes in American politics. What the Democrats need to be thinking about is their own long march. And a crucial element of that long march is how to replace the strength in small towns and rural areas that the loss of the white South cost the Democratic Party in the 1970s and 1980s. To your point, I've had that conversation more times than I can count, Gary, is, well, the Supreme Court, well, the Electoral College, well, the United States Senate. I said, I get it. None of those things are likely to change. These are the rules of the game we're playing. So if you want to elect a United States Senate from North Dakota, find a Democrat who can speak to North Dakotans. Don't just say, well, we get beat every time, so we're going to put up the most progressive person because, you know, the eight Democrats that live in North Dakota are all progressives. Like, you can have purity or you can win, but you rarely get both. Now, it seems that, you know, on the flip side, the Republican Party under Trump is demanding its own sort of purity, and they are, to your point about how the electoral system works, they are sort of getting both. But that gets to my question, which is all of the conversation we've had for the last hour is predicated, I think, on some sort of functional democracy. And so the next political order, if it's going to be something that has at least an egalitarian ethos or you know has an intention to do the best by the most people it can, then without democracy, that all seems to be a pipe dream. Yes, it doesn't happen without democracy. And America may lose its democracy. I understand that is what motivates a lot of people in your camp. The democracy that is treasured in America may disappear. Now, look, I mean, I remember being on a phone call two years ago with Bernie Sanders and several other people. And he said, Reid, I assume we don't agree on much. And I said, Senator, we don't. And he said, but I think we can agree that American democracy needs to survive. And I said, Senator, we can. He said, good. Well, I look forward to saving it and arguing with you later. Now, he said that in that time when we had Donald Trump on the verge of a potential reelection, but those sorts of grand thoughts of coalition and working together can be tougher when there isn't the big prize on the ballot, I guess, Gary. Yes. It's also important to recognize the global dimensions of the issue that America is facing. Democracy is messy. It's deliberative. It involves compromise. And it sometimes has problems that are difficult to solve. And the last time the world went through this was in the 1930s, when much of the world was in the grip of a Great Depression that seemed to be defying the ability of all governments to chart a path forward. And that was the moment authoritarians appeared and say, get rid of all this democracy crap. I'm going to cut through it. I'm a strong man. I embody your will. I am the will of the people. This is what Trump believes. Live through me and I will deliver you the people. Of course, it's only a certain kind of people. And I get to decide what you people need and what you're going to get. These people are all over the world now, and they recognize themselves in each other. Trump is one. Putin is another. Orban is a third. Erdogan in Turkey is a fourth. Modi in India is a fifth. Duarte in the Philippines was a sixth. Xi in China, we can include him. Bolsonaro in Brazil. And these are not small countries, Gary. These are the biggest countries, the biggest economies. Yes. You know, these are players in every sense. That's why the 2020 election and Biden's victory and the Lincoln Project's contribution to that was so important, because Trump's loss mattered in the global sense in the same way. One of our leading lights got defeated. And 
if we're looking for optimism, we shouldn't lose sight of the great triumph of the 2020 election, that Trump was, in fact, defeated. Democracies go through these periods when it's perceived as weak and effectual, and a lot of people are tempted by the authoritarian populist alternative because of the promises of a strong man coming in and waving his wand or his sword or his scythe. That becomes very appealing. And so a global consciousness is important in this moment because it's not just an American problem. It's something that a lot of areas in the world are going through, which means that the Democrats, small d Democrats, of which you are one, have to fight for and ally themselves with the world over so that democracy ultimately triumphs as it did coming out of World War II. Well, amen to that. And, you know, Gary, this is the one thing that you said in the illusion and the seduction of the, the strong man, as it were, is because it's easy. You don't have to do anything. But democracy, gang, means we all got to do it, right? We all got to do our little part, whether or not that's just voting, making sure your friends and family vote, working as a poll worker, knocking doors for the candidate you believe in. It doesn't work without us. I know that sounds trite like pablum, but it also happens to be true. Well, Gary, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find your work? The book that I've been talking about is called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, published by Oxford University Press. You can get it from Oxford online. You can get it from Amazon online. And I'd like to think the bookstore down the road from you will have it as well. And if not, you can order it. If not, you can order it. Email, you can reach me at my Cambridge University email address, which is glg34.cam.ac.uk. And my Twitter handle is at glgerstel. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Gary Gerstel, thanks again for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.